morning. My name's Mary from an alcoholic. Hi. Happy Easter. <laughs> yeah, I have a little accent here. I want to, first of all, thank uh, the committee for um, asking me to come all the way to Iowa. It's my first time here. Um, and it's been a privilege, just a privilege to be here all weekend. It's been a wonderful conference, hasn't it? Really wonderful. <laughs> All of the speakers touched my heart. They carried a wonderful message of recovery, and I thank you. Um, Not always when we come out to speak do we have the opportunity um, to hear new people speak, but it was a privilege. I was just really, I I just felt overwhelmed um, with each one of your talks. I was particularly pleased to see Al-Anon, two Al-Anons speaking at this conference um, I am of the, the thought that I have many times felt as though I was a double winner. Um, Al-Anon has played a big part of my recovery. Um, and for all Al-Anons, I'm eternally grateful to the message that you carry. So thank you. And thanks this committee. For- um, I want to thank my hostess. She's absolutely lovely. Um, When she said that about me, I can remember the day that I found that in the book where it says that on our morning meditation we need to ask for that patience and tolerance and kindliness. And I said, kindliness? Ooh. So to be actually told (laughs) that someone thought of me as kind, that was um, something must be working beyond me. Um, And so I was grateful for her hospitality she came to pick me up, and before she, when I, um, we were kind of, com- you know, communicating via email now, and she said uh, something of the effect of, um, well, I was told to come to the airport and um, maybe hold up a sign or something like that. And so I wrote her back, and I said, I've been doing this for a while, and I've never failed to know who was the person that was going to pick me up at an airport. And it is because of what was talked about. There's something in the eyes. <clears throat> and that's exactly how we... I just walked off the airport, and she and Rhonda were there, and I said, hi. <laughs> that was it. Off we went. Um, uh, the hospitality um, at your conference here is lovely. I'm now on a committee um, uh, that puts out a conference, so I absolutely know how much work it takes to put one of these things together and to make a speaker feel welcome. Sometimes a speaker can be the loneliest person in the crowd. For some reason, you think we're different <laughs> We're not. Um, <clears throat> and, um, and you know, I walked in, and there was this lovely basket of fruit. Um, I mentioned that I had read something on the airplane about Maytag blue cheese, and um, I have Maytag blue cheese, thank you, to bring home with me. <clears throat> I also had a lovely talk with Rhonda about uh, New Mexico, where I... Um, feel is another one of my AA families. Um, I uh, lived in New Mexico for three years, and she was from Albuquerque, and that's all we did is chat about Santa Fe and New Mexico, and I have frozen green chilies to take home, too. Thank you. Last but not least, I want to thank the tapers. Um, Because of the tapers, um, some of us that don't live in uh, large communities 
have the opportunity to listen to some wonderful, wonderful speakers that carry messages like you've heard this weekend. And um, I was fortunate enough to find my sponsor's tapes um, out there, and I'm going to be sent my other sponsor's tapes. Uh, the husband and wife team sponsored me. Very powerful people that um, the reason I stand here is to carry the message they carried to me. And with that, I hope I have not missed anybody. Um, I never know what to do now. <laughs> it's kind of like I stand out, you know, you come in, and I never uh, wanted to be one of these people up here. That was not my choice to do that. That is absolutely, just stick me in the back row or the front row and let me just drink in. That's all I wanted. Just don't kick me out. Please don't kick me out. Don't hurt me anymore. Just let me stay with you people. I did not want to be up here, though. In fact, I, like one of our speakers, am an introvert. <clears throat> and I feel just fine having you just feed me. Uh, that wasn't in God's plan, though. And I can remember that um, the first time I... Can I put this down? It's all right. It's okay. I'll be fiddling with it the whole time. Um, the first time I spoke uh, was in Taos, New Mexico, and um, uh, I can remember calling my sponsor and saying, I can't do this. this. I haven't slept. I can't do this. This is not, this is not part of it. And she said, honey, you're going to be fine. You're just going to be fine. She said, just ask God to use her as an instrument. And I said, okay. And I got up and I spoke and I said, well, God, I'm done with that. But you see, Arbutus and Bill were taping that conference and um, they said, pack your bags. And I didn't know what she was talking about. And uh, the second time that I was asked to speak was at a conference called A Woman to Woman, which um, is a wonderful conference. It's where Al-Anon and AA women, you don't know who's who, are um, actually in a big camp in Brownwood, Texas. And um, my roommate was an Al-Anon by the name of Rusty Kelly, um, and uh, she died this past year, lo big loss to the Al-Anon community. She was a lovely, lovely lady. And I said to her, I said, you know, Rusty, I don't think I can do this. It's, it's just too nerve-wracking to me. I just, I don't, I want to do it. And she said, well, Johnny Harris told me something. He said, Sib I didn't say Sybil, he said, Rusty, your phone won't ring unless God wants you to talk. Kind of put me right in my place. So for some reason, God wants me to share with you today, and I hope I can carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to you. Um, now, I need to let you know I did a little drinking. I don't want to stay in my drunk log, so hopefully I can get through it. But I need you to know that I did not get here because I burnt the toast after a martini one day. That is not how I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous. I was raised in a very New England um, town, a very Boston proper town. Um, it's about it's north of Boston, about 26 miles. It's kind of like the uh, Hilton Head of the North Shore. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's called Marblehead, Massachusetts. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful town. It's um, wonderful, wonderful to be from, and I always say, and far away from, as far as I was concerned. Um, but um, it was. It was a gorgeous, gorgeous place. Uh, I was raised um, on something called Marblehead Neck, which is even better, you know. Um, and there's a lot of money, property, and prestige there, which diverts you from your primary purpose, let me tell you. <laughs> um, 
And I don't know why I was raised there. I, 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 when I look back, I, I, I must tell you that um, all the props were there. All the externals were there. And they were. I mean, what a gift. I mean, I looked out my bedroom window at the ocean and listened to the foghorn off Baker's Island. And my father was Commodore of the Yacht Club. And uh, we cruised every summer. And I started swimming at the age of three and got my first trophy at the age of four. Um, there wasn't anything that wasn't out there, except, you see, there was a little thing that happened. <clears throat> my father was 47 when I was born, and um, my, my mother was his second wife, and um, I guess he felt, um, and, and he should feel this way, that you know children were supposed to be seen and not heard, and that's a difficult thing for somebody who's curious. Um, it really is very, very difficult. And uh, um, I was supposed to, um, I don't know what I was supposed to be, but I guess I was supposed to learn through osmosis. Um, we were raised by a lot of nursemaids. Uh, we were always fed and kind of put away before Dad got home. Um, I, in hindsight, I know I was abandoned. I felt absolutely, totally alone. There was absolutely no communication. Um, my home was almost like a business is all I can tell you. And for some reason, as soon as Dad came home and had his two pitches of martinis, um, things seemed to relax a little bit and you could get out of the business of being, I don't know what we were doing. I really don't know. But um, I just had a wrong concept of how life was supposed to be lived. And society would have you think that this is the way life is supposed to be. I mean, the props were all there. And I was dying inside as a child. Just as a child, I was dying inside. Well, I, was, as a, I got a little rebellious, you know, and that wasn't supposed to happen. And when I acted out enough, they finally said, well, we need to do something with her, so they sent her away to school. And so I ended up in a little private school up in the White Mountains of uh, Maine, New Hampshire, um, uh, Freiburg Academy. And by then I had been drinking. I don't know when my first drink was. I've got to be honest with you, I really don't know because it was always there. Uh, we'd go on the boat and sometimes on the weekend Dad would give me a little bit of beer and we'd take our swim off the boat, you know. And uh, uh, as time went on, I would finish all the drinks when they left for the yacht club and they'd had the party, you know, uh, at the house. I would finish them all. And somehow that kept me together. It worked for me. It made me feel okay. I guess it made me able to be proper. I don't know what it did. But um, I just, you know, that was part of it. Uh, drinking was always part of it. Um, Dad had a liquor cabinet um, um, at home that he finally put a lock on. I think he probably knew. But, you know, I learned right away how to take the hinges. You know, there's little pins out of the hinges. And so immediately I knew how to be a thief, you know. It was just really easy to do that, you know. Um, I remember when he brought me up to the academy, I knew that I could make hard cider out of the cider on the um, roadside. And so, you know, I would not go to the store because they have some kind of pre preservative or something in the cider. And so on the way up to Freiburg, I would, you know, do that uh, manipulating, make him feel guilty sending the daughter away, you know, type thing, and say, Dad, can't we stop and get some cider? And he'd say, okay, well, you can get a gallon. I said, can't I have two gallons? I mean, they drink it all the minute they, I get into the dorm. And he'd say, okay. And, of course, I never shared it. I had not. I was a little selfish at that point, you know, even then. You know, I knew that I would need that. I knew I would need that to get through. That's all I can tell you. I just knew it worked for me. And I left that academy, and um, there was a little ad for a professional swimmer, and... 
And I said, gee, I think I'll do that. It was with the water follies. And Dad said, no, you won't. That's not very proper. So I did. You know, I mean, that's kind of the way I was. I mean, I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it. Now, it's a good thing that I could swim better than walk because that's where I really got into some alcohol. It was fun. It was, it was wonderful. We traveled all over the states. Um, this was, um, it was kind of a fun thing. You know, Esther Williams started with the Water Follies and some of the others. And, and I drank. Um, I, was ta- I was at um, a conference speaking. There was a fellow that was in Youngstown, Ohio, and he talked about being a gangster. And we met, the gangsters love us when we came in to swim. And, you know, they've just set the bar up for us. And uh, it, was, it was quite a time. And um, so I, I, I had a lot of fun with alcohol. I had a lot of fun with alcohol. And I'm here to say that if it was still working, I'd be out there. That's just the way it is. If it was still working, I'd be out there. It put me together. When I came home from one of our shows, I was waiting for another time to go out, and my father said to me, no, you're not sitting around. You know, these people didn't even have Al-Anon. I'm really glad they, they you know, they knew tough love. And, and thank God they did some of the things that they did, or I wouldn't be here. Thank God they did that. Um, so you're not sitting around here. You're going to get a job. Well, I got a job in Boston, and I got myself an apartment in Harvard Square, <laughs> Cambridge. And I ran into a gal I graduated from Freiburg with, and we were sitting down having a cup of coffee, and in walked um, a bunch of guys, and, you know, that one looked good, and that one looked good, and pretty soon I was with one of them, and um, then I found myself um, to the point where I realized I really didn't like what was going on, and I decided I'd go to college. And I made a bargain with my father to send me to this college up in Maine, and um, I was there for about a month, and I wasn't feeling well. There was something wrong with me in the evenings. And, of course, I went to a doctor, and I found out I was pregnant. And then I went to just to the door of the abortionist, and for eternally grateful um, for some moment of clarity, um, because he couldn't abort me that afternoon, and my former husband... Um, was with me, and um, he wasn't my husband at that time. And uh, somehow I had a moment of clarity, and I said, I don't think I can do this. And he said, neither can I. And um, we got married. I was pregnant and married, which, again, is not a proper thing in New England. It's not something you're chatting about on the Yacht Club porch, you know. (laughs) And I can remember calling my folks and saying, Mom, you need to be sitting down. And I had to tell her I was pregnant, and she said, who? And she didn't even know who this guy was. I mean, it was just, you know, it was just another person that, you know, when you get involved and you drink a little bit, usually you attract the same type of people, and, of course, he was an alcoholic. And we got married, and um, they gave me a lovely wedding. I mean, they they did the proper thing, you know. Um, And I uh, married this man and, and he wasn't the fun type of alcoholic and I just, every single one of us that's come up here has talked about this but I guess it was just the way it was you know and he had a little bit of a temper when he drank and um, and I was what they called a battered wife and my weekend guests were usually the local police and uh, and it was like not a fun fun uh, time for me I was pregnant, um, I, you know, and that's a difficult time to be beaten up a lot. It really is. And I couldn't drink. No matter how much I wanted to drink, my daughter, thank God, did not want me drinking, and I would get sick, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that I could not drink during that pregnancy. 
And there was a lot of reality that was happening, a lot of reality that was happening, and not a fun thing. And when my daughter was nine months old, he beat me up one time pretty bad, and he ended up picking her up and driving off, and he, he had a little TR3, and he drove off with a top down, and they didn't have car seats in those days. And I can remember watching him drive off with her, and there was something that happened inside of me, and I said, uh-uh, he's not going to endanger that kid. And I knew he was going to bring her over to his mother's, and he did, thank God. And, and um, I called, and she said, yes, she's here. And then I called my mother, and I said, Mom, I need to know if I could leave my husband. And she said, I've been waiting for this call for a year and a half. And um, I wish she had said something, but she didn't. Uh, it was just the way it was. And those people, again, took me home. And, of course, this now was a, a difficult time, you see. I had a child now, and I had arrived back home. And we didn't talk about anything. Nothing was talked about. And I do think, in hindsight, that that's when my alcoholism took off. You see, I had all of this pain inside. I didn't know how, who to talk to. I didn't know how to tell anybody that, you know, as a girl, I think we dream that we're going to meet the right whatever and that we're going to have a little home and the white picket fence and we're going to raise a child in a nice place and everything else. And all of that had been smashed pretty, pretty, pretty definitely. And uh, I was feeling a lot of feelings, and the only way that kept those feelings in was alcohol. And alcohol then started to become a necessity for me to keep myself together. It was not something that was good. So um, for me to have be back with them. And I can remember that they were wonderful people, um, and I don't even think my, I don't know if my dad was alcoholic. I think he was a heavy drinker. I, I really do. Um, he never missed work. Um, uh, I just I don't even know, but I do know that it was definitely something that um, he, he was a good provider. Um, anyway, um, I had a tendency of getting my daughter into bed, and then I had to escape from that environment. It was too oppressed for me. I, I, I don't know. I just didn't know what to do, and I needed some alcohol. And I would go to Maddie's Sayloft, which is I used to call my alma mater, the local bar, and um, I would get in there, and I don't know, it got to the point that this was a little clue here, that when they said last call, I don't know if you're like me, but I said set them up. You know, um, that doesn't make too much sense when you, when you think about it. I, you know, now that I've been sober a while, you know, I realize that most people don't sit there and drink four or five and then run to the next place before last call so you can get another three or four, you know. And then if it didn't close, I'd still have been there, you see. And then my folks didn't think this was very proper, me coming home at, you know, 1.32 in the, in the morning. And so they said to me, you have to be home at a reasonable hour. You have to be home by 10 o'clock. And to me, that was still happy hour. I did not understand that when I took that first drink that I would continue the, the craving to have to have another, to have to have another. I could not stop. It was a good reason for me to come home. I had a kid there. I had to get up and so forth. I could not stop. And eventually they said, I'm sorry, you have to leave. Well, that gave me a lot to drink about. I can remember going over into the town then, which is a lovely town, but we used to say the townies, I'm, I'm telling you. And, um, and I was one of them now. And I can remember I drank at them like you wouldn't believe. I drank at them. And what happened is what's absolutely normal for most of us that continue to do this. I developed a reputation that I couldn't get away from. And the easiest way for me to get away from that, of course, was to do what? A geographical. And so I did what anybody would do. I took my geographical, 
and I landed in Southern California. Now, my sponsors always said, yeah, they tipped the map, and all the loose nuts fell into Southern California. <laughs> and that's where I arrived. I arrived um, in the late 60s. Um, my daughter was four years old. And I had a little problem. You see, in order to get a job, they had to take a typing test. And by then, alcoholism had affected my nerves a little bit. I didn't know that. I thought I was shy. And for some reason, there'd be mornings when I went for an interview and I couldn't somehow take this typing test. My hands would be all over. I had a half-sister out there, and she said to me, why didn't I go to a doctor? And the doctor sent me to a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and he asked me if I was alcoholic. And I said, I don't drink that much. What's an alcoholic? In the town I was raised in, we had one alcoholic. We called him Domi. That's to me. And I did not have any concept on what alcoholism was. It was almost like I said to him, call me crazy, but just don't call me an alcoholic. And he gave me a little pill to stop those shakes. And in those days, he gave me an open prescription. And it was Valium. And I found out very quickly that when I passed out, and came to at 2 or 3 in the morning that I could take one or two of those little things and I could finally get back into sleep. And that became for the last five years of my drinking. I was around the clock drinking and value user. Now, I wish I could tell you a whole bunch about that, but I was a blackout drinker anyway, as was said here. I didn't know that, no, I didn't realize that, I thought anybody who drank had a blackout. I didn't know any different until I came into these halls. And I started to do things that I didn't like. I'd come out of these blackouts and I would find myself yelling at the only thing I loved most in this world, which was that child. And you would think that that would be a good enough reason to stop drinking, but instead I thought, well, I will solve this. I will drink in bars only. And I was always going to have one, maybe two, and then come home. And there was a woman who lived in uh, my apartment building who had a teenager, and she was the babysitter. And her, um, I would call that woman and her daughter be after two or three drinks, and I would say, do you think you could watch Candace a little bit longer? I'm just going to have one more drink, and I'll be home. You see, I didn't understand that I couldn't stop. I didn't understand. And finally, after the second or third call, they would say, Mary Thea, why don't you just leave Candace overnight? Pick her up in the morning. And I would do that. By then, I was sleeping with a knife between my box spring and mattress. There was something trying to get me at night. I couldn't figure out what that was. I didn't understand that that was a form of the DTs. All I knew was is that I would come out of something, and there was something that was ready to get me. So I got a big butcher knife, and I stuck the blade between the box spring and mattress, and I would get my hand there to whip it out to whatever was trying to get me had no idea what was happening to me. It was 1973. A situation had happened. I need to let you know I am not a Catholic. In fact, I was raised in something that's called no religion, called Unitarianism. And I only went 
when the handyman brought us, you know, because they didn't do any church. So I had no concept of a power greater than myself. And I need to let you know I'm really grateful because I didn't have to unlearn a lot of stuff, too. You know, I just need to tell you that. But I did have a situation that occurred, and I don't always talk about this, but um, about three years before I came into this program, my daughter had something the matter with her feet. And um, it kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I took her to four specialists over a period of nine months. And um, uh, something happened where um, they were shooting cortisone in it. Another one had lights on it. Another had cream on it. Somebody gave her some Ritalin that wasn't at all what she should need it. I was using that to clean the house afterwards, you know. But <laughs> it was like, um, I, I mean, nothing was working for this child. And, it was, and this is just how it happened. And I'm just going to share it because it's Easter Sunday, maybe. Um, I, I was working. I was always, I, I seemed to somehow be able to work. And I'm eternally grateful for that. Um, I was working at this, um, in this bond house in, in Century City. And um, I was their full charge bookkeeper. And um, <clears throat> it was about three or four weeks before Christmas. And my daughter and I were out and we were Christmas shopping. And, and um, all of a sudden she said, Mommy, I can't walk. Because you see, when this thing hit, her feet would bleed and her toenails would come off and she just couldn't walk. I mean, it would be oozing. Oh, it was just awful. And I'd say, okay, honey, and I picked her up and I brought her home. And it took three days before she could walk. And so I had to stay home with her during that time. And I remember I walked into the office and I said, um, and, and Mal said to me, he said, Mary Thier, he said, Mary Thier is my first name. I need to let you know. It's kind of a double first name, okay? And um, after my... One of my other divorces, I just decided most of you people thought it was my last name anyway, so I just legally made it my last name, but it's my first name, so um, I'm kind of like Madonna, okay? <laughs> <laughs> just know that's why I refer to myself that way. You can call me Mary, it doesn't make any difference. That's another story, I'll tell you. Anyway, um, so they said to me, you know, how's Candace? And I said, um, I don't know what to do, and I broke down into tears, and I started to sob, and Mal looked at me, and he said, do you believe in God? And I said, well, I don't go to church. And he said, well, he said, my brother-in-law runs a ministry in Lake San Marcos, and it's called the Invisible Ministry, and maybe you want to talk to him. He's helped a lot of people. Well, I, you know, when you, you don't have anything else to do, you talk to anybody. And I called this man up, and he said, call me friend Stuart. I said, okay. And uh, I said, he said, tell me what's happening. And I told him what I'd been doing for the last nine months, and nothing was helping. And he said, our religion is based on Emmett Fox. And he said, um, we study um, this book, and what we're going to do is put her on a prayer um, list. And um, you go home, and you tell Candace that uh, you're... You thank God for what you have, and if this doesn't heal in seven days, then then um, you send us a little prayer request. And I said, okay. And I said, what, why is this happening? And he said, well, every body, every part of our body means something, and feet mean lack of understanding. And apparently, your daughter has a lack of understanding. Now, I thought it was because I'd broken up with X, Y, Z. You know, it's very similar to I'm, you know, scratch an alcoholic enough, and you find an Al-Anon, and yo, here I am. And um, I, um, you know, I was the him. Um, I thought, well, maybe it's because I had this breakup. Because it wasn't the fact that I had been almost catatonic with booze, you know, that my kid might not have an understanding. 
But I didn't see that at that time. And I can remember I went home, and for three weeks we prayed every single night and thanked God for what we had. And uh, my aunt came for Christmas, I remember, and she said, what are you doing for her? And I said, we're praying. And she said, all right. And uh, so uh, that's all we did was pray. And uh, the night before Christmas, Candace came out of the bedroom and said, Mommy, God answered our prayers. And there wasn't a thing the matter with my child's feet. Not one thing. Her little foot looked like a little foot. That's all I can tell you. Now, I, I mean, I, didn't ha- I wasn't raised in any religion, and I'm not here to evangelate anything one way or the other. All I'm going to tell you is, is that prayer worked for me. Prayer worked for me, and I knew there was a God. That was my burning bush, so to speak. And uh, although I knew it wasn't my God, I knew it was Candace's. You people gave me my God. You people gave me my God. I um, drank and became like a drunken saint. In fact, it was one of my first... <laughs> I was God-blessing everything, you know? And, uh, on my Emmett Fox book, there was my scotch glass there. You know, I'd drink and I'd bless and everything. And then one morning, I remember I woke up and I said, God, what is the matter with me? And for some reason, one morning as I walked over to pick up my daughter at that babysitter's, the mother came out and said, Mary Thea, we've really never got to know each other very well. My name is Rosemary, and come in and have a cup of coffee and let's talk. Well, I don't know about you, but when you meet somebody who's going to 12-step you, you don't talk. They talk. <laughs> and this woman actually 12-stepped me, and she told me about herself, and she had been raised in New England and gone to MIT, and she worked over in Burbank at um, Lockheed and... Uh, She kind of went on and on, and then she said she was an alcoholic. And I said, really? And she said, yes. She had this little sign in the back of her car that said, easy does it. And I would sit there and I'd say, what does that mean? (laughs) Easy does what? And I said, I don't know what it was. And so all of a sudden she said to me, "Um, you know, I've been an alcoholic, da-da-da. I said, that sounds fascinating. I know a lot of people that could use that. (laughs) And she said, yes. She said, well, we have open meetings. And I said, really? And she said, yes, there's one tonight. Why not come? And I said, oh, I don't think I have a babysitter. She said, yeah, you have a babysitter. (laughs) I arrived at her house that night. Um, She had to go someplace. Her sponsor at that time was a man named Clancy. And um, I can remember um, her husband at that time. (laughs) You know, we're very... I don't know what you'd say. Uh, Interesting people. We seem to collect significant others. (laughs) Anyways, this gentleman um, brought me to my first meeting, and it was the Winneka Friday night meeting in the San Fernando Valley. Now, that's a big meeting. I mean, there has to be at least four or 500 people in that meeting. And he walked me in, and there was a, people were laughing, and they, they clean up very well in California. They really do. It's, it's amazing. Um, and there was, it was like everybody was happy, and it didn't look at what I thought an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting would look like. You've been to California, haven't you? No? But you, okay. um, anyway, I came in, and this lady said, uh, how are you? Welcome. And she said, um, do you want some literature? And I said, okay. And she brought me all this literature, and another one jumped down, sat down next to me, and said, you know, is this your first meeting? And I said, um, no, I'm just visiting. I mean, I don't know. I thought I'd catch it or something. I didn't know what it was, you know. And, you know, people just said, well, wonderful. And the lady who gave me the, the um, 
uh, literature gave me this thing that said 20 questions, and I looked at it. She said, oh, no, don't look at it now. Someday when you're all alone, you have nothing to do, why don't you answer those questions? And I said, okay, fine, thank you, thank you, very proper. And so I sat there and everything, and I thought, you know, these people really look nice. It's like an open meeting. It's like the PTA came to see what this was all about, you know. <laughs> They're all very nice. They're very charming, you know, proper to me. And so I sat there, and then, you know, they had anniversaries, or they call them birthdays on the West Coast, and people sang, and they sang out of key, and they laughed, and it was like, everybody was wonderful. They were just, it was like the enthusiasm of this program was just reeking. And then they had the first, um, they had the speaker, and out there they have a speaker, like now, where they, in the East, they don't speak the whole hour. They only speak like 10, 15 minutes at a speaker. I mean, it's very different, isn't it, no matter where you go. But it's a language of the heart. We all get the message. Anyway, this woman stood up, and she said, my name is Sybil. <laughs> and she said, no, I'm an alcoholic. And she happened to have been um, the first woman alcoholic in California. And at that time, she probably had 30-something years of sobriety, which was more sobriety than I was old. And she gave a talk that I don't remember most of it, but I remember parts of it. And there would be times when she was speaking when I was laughing hysterically, and then there were times when this thing came up into my throat and I thought I was just going to die. And, you know, we weren't allowed. I lived in an emotional family. You know, if emotions were in a range from 1 to 10, 1 being absolutely no feelings at all to 10 being absolutely overly, you know, exuberant, I was told to live between 3 and 4. And that's, that's what I was drinking, and that booze would let me stay right there, you know. And I had these emotions start to come up in me, and I didn't have any booze to put them down. I could feel that energy coming, and I would just swallow hard. And when she was all done talking, I remember Dave turned to me, and he said, Mary Thea, how did you like her? And I said, I could cry, and he said, go ahead. And it was the first time in my life anybody said, it's okay to cry. And it was like a dam opened up. And this flood of tears came out, and I had no idea why I was crying. And I remember he took me by the arm, and he walked me up to Sybil, and he said, Sybil, I want you to meet Mary Thea. It's her first meeting. And she turned around, and she wrapped her arms around me, and she said, Welcome home, honey. And I want you to know something. Nobody had said welcome home to me ever. I had been raised in a home where we were sent away. I was sent away to a school when I came home, they kicked me out. When I married somebody who beat the shit out of me, and I definitely had not made a home for myself and my daughter. And when that woman said that to me, something happened inside. And I know a lot of people don't come into these halls feeling the way I felt, but I'll never forget that woman for that. And when she said that to me, and I have been home in the halls of Alcoholics Anonymous since September 13, 1973. And I love this fellowship, and I love this program. And I wish that's about all I had to say, and I could sit down. But I need to try to somehow give you an idea on what this fellowship has done for me in the last 28 years. When the next morning when I went over to this woman's house to thank her for having her husband bring me to this meeting, I had by then taken those 20 questions, and I had answered 17 of them, yes. And I didn't know whether to laugh or cry, because it was the only place that I'd ever felt at home. 
And David had said to me on the way home from that meeting, he said, if you're alcoholic, it's kind of like getting on a bus. You can get on a bus and you can go all the way down to Skid Row, or you can get right off right here in North Hollywood. That's going to be your choice. It's up to you. This is a progressive illness. It does not get better. It gets worse. And so the next day when I went over and I said, Rosemary, I thank you, she said, um, she said, well, what did you think of that meeting? And I said, well, I, I really think that maybe I'm alcoholic. And she said, yes, I've been waiting for you for a year and a half. <laughs> and I said, you have? And she says, yes, I have. And she says, now this is what you're going to do. <laughs> she says, you're not going to drink anything. You're not going to take any pills. And she said, and you're going to come to, we said that in those days, 90 meetings in 90 days. And I said, I am? And she said, yes. And she said, be ready at 7.30. And um, I said, no, wait a minute. What do you mean? She said, you need to go to a meeting, and I will take you to your first meeting. And, and she said, no pills. And I said, but you don't understand. <laughs> if I don't take those Valium, I end up in the hospital like I'm having a heart attack. And she said, no, honey, that's a dry drink. You're not going to take that. Now, let me just say to you, I don't recommend this today. I don't think necessarily that is exactly what should have been said to me. In fact, I belonged absolutely in a rehab, and I needed to be detoxed. But in those days, for some reason, we didn't do it. We did it right there in the halls. We just sat in the halls and detoxed with orange juice and honey. But I'm telling you, it took care, it took care of the shakes. Um, and I don't recommend that. I think that we have a line in our book that says that we have many good doctors, and I think we need to use them. And I'm not here to say that if anybody is on medication that they should stop. Please know that. Please know that. This is just my story, and I'm going to share my story. I do know that um, she brought me to that night to a meeting in, um, you know, the Pacific Group. She was using Clancy as a sponsor. That was a big meeting. That scared me. I told you I was an introvert. I was coming off of some heavy booze, daily drinker, period, you know, periodic drunk is always what I said, but, you know, pretty close to every day with a drunk. And uh, I was shaking and rattling around, and I met some wonderful people. But afterwards, they have this thing that they do, or they were doing at that time, where they'd bring you to a coffee shop, and you'd drink coffee till 2 in the morning, just about. Then you'd get up, and you'd have to shake everybody's hand. And then after a while, they kept saying that there'd be a time when we were going to go to some yard, and we were going to clean up goat poop, and we were going to play baseball. And I didn't know what was going on. I just absolutely had no idea what was happening. And they were very enthusiastic, and they just kept saying, this is what you're going to do, and this is what you're going to do, and she dragged me. Now, I'm detoxing. And I'm like, you know, if anybody is detoxed off a Valium, it's almost like every single fiber of your body is like a spring coil inside. And you never think that you were going to, it's like this, I couldn't straighten anything out. It was like awful. It was just horrendous. And they'd say, have some orange juice and honey. And I just said, and I was shaking and rattling and rolling. And I remember it was about a week and a half or so, um, and we were over in Santa Monica at some meeting. They had a coffee break in the middle of it. I do remember that. I remember she said to me now, she said, she was drink, bringing me, and she gave me wonderful clear-cut directions. Thank you, God, for that. And I thank God for this woman, because this woman, if she was not there, I would not have been 12-stepped into this halls. When Clancy teaches anybody, he teaches them the fundamentals on how to carry this message to other alcoholics. I'm eternally grateful to that man and to his sponsorship, and I'd go anywhere to listen to that man talk. Now... She told me that I was going to get drunk. I was due back to go back for my father's 75th birthday, when I, um, it, which was about a month away. I already had the tickets in those days. You always booked a month or two ahead. 
and I was scared because I, I, I didn't know what to do. And she said I was going to get drunk if I did not find a sponsor. And this is what she said to me. You need to find a sponsor who's into the big book and the 12 and 12, who has at least six or seven years of recovery. And I'm grateful she gave me those little guidelines. I, I, I just really am really grateful on that. And she told me that, again, that I was going to get drunk if I didn't do this. Now, I didn't really know what a sponsor was. I didn't know how to get them. I didn't know if you interviewed. I had no idea what these words were that we, we throw out at newcomers. And um, so anyway, uh, as it turned out, um, uh, I only knew one thing. I didn't want her. That much I did not <laughs> Anyhow. She brought me to this meeting, and she said, tonight you're going to read. And in California, they do a lot of reading, and I want to say how much I appreciated listening over this weekend about the amount of reading you bring to this podium, and thank you for that. They don't do that as much in Maine. Anyway, um, uh, we're in that meeting, and she said, you're going to read. And I said, what? And she said, you're going to read. Now, my eyes weren't focusing. You know, nothing was focusing. I mean, I was hanging on to that (coughs) chair just to sit in the chair. And I said, oh, I can't do that. She said, you never say no to an AA request. I said, no. And she turned her head, and she wouldn't speak to me. And I thought at that moment that I was kicked out of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the coffee break arrived, and she she went off to get coffee and everything, and there was a little man in the back of that room who didn't go. And for some reason, I got up and I sat down and I told him what had happened. And he said, how long have you been sober? And I said, a week and a half. And he said, the only thing you have to do is not drink and find a meeting that you're comfortable in. I am eternally grateful for that man because there are many of us that cannot stand up here. I don't know why. I, I just don't know why. And I, but that's my story. And, I, you know, lo and behold, here I am up here. But, um, you know... Uh, what happened for me was that, and after about another week or so, there was a woman there that must have known that I was about ready to have seizures. And she said to me, um, I was so frightened, and she said to me, why don't you come to a meeting in the West Valley? There's a nice little meeting, and I'll meet you there. And I did, and I got there the next Thursday, and it was called the Canyon Group. And it was in Chatsworth, California. And I walked into that meeting, there was a man talking about the big book, and I said, oh, my God. This must be a sponsor-type person. And I listened very carefully. And after that meeting, I went up and I bought the big book from him. And he looked at me and he said, how long have you been around? And I said, you know, a couple of weeks. And he said, let me tell you the story about how I got my big book, and I will share that with you. He said, when I got my book, he said, I had a sponsor, and in those days we called them adversaries. He said that uh, my sponsor told me to get a big book, and he said he wanted to see the receipt because he knew I was a thief. <laughs> he said so he said I um, bought that big book and he said and I read this big book he said um, he said and I looked for the loopholes and they're in there and he said I decided I wanted to chat about this book with my sponsor and so I went back to my sponsor and his sponsor at that time was a man named Larry Blake and Larry said um, you want to talk to me about the big book he said yes I do and he said, okay. He said, I'll talk to you about the big book when you can tell me what's on the first page of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So this man's name was Hugh Douglas. And he said, uh, okay. So he went back and he memorized the preface that said, we are 100 men and women who have seen, recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind, a body. And he went on and on. He memorized that whole first page. And it, this took him a while. And he got back into North Hollywood Radford and, 
walked over to Larry and started quoting that. And Larry let him finish, and he said, no, that's not on the first page of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. So they had a little argument about it, but he went home, and he finally got into the contents, and he went on and on, and finally he got the contents down. And he went back, and he recited this to Larry, and Larry said, no, that's not on the first page of the big book. And this went on for about two or three months. And finally, you know, he was opening the book and he looked and he said, huh, two words are on this first page. It says Alcoholics Anonymous. So he found Larry and he walked into Radford and he said, Alcoholics Anonymous. Larry said, what are you talking about? He says, you told me if I told you it was on the first page of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that we could talk about it. And he says, give me that book. He says, you damn fool, there's nothing on the first page of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, if it's taking you this long and you couldn't figure that out, how long is it going to take you to know what the black lines say? That's how I got my big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I thanked this man, and I went home, and I was so excited. I just said, oh, this must be a sponsor person. He really knew a lot about it. And I can remember that um, Rosemary said to me, have you got a song? Have they been into the, have they been around a while? I said, yeah, I think so. She says, good. And she said, are they into the big book and the 12 and 12? And I said, oh, yes. I didn't know what the 12 and 12 was, but yeah, they were in this big book. I finally figured out the big book was Alcoholics Anonymous. I, you know, we say all these things. We really have our own lingo here. Anyway, um, so I arrived back the next week, and sure enough, there he was. And I was so thrilled to see him. And as I stood afterwards waiting to talk to him, he said, how are you this week? And I said, I'm really fine. And he said, good, good. And I said, may I ask you something? And he said, yeah. And I said, I was wondering, would you sponsor me? And he kind of leaned over and he looked at me and he said, you know, honey, my wife doesn't cotton me sponsoring women since I married her. And I said, yeah. He said, she's that redhead over there. She's got kind of a Mickey Mouse program, but perhaps she can help you out. <laughs> I walked over to that woman, and you have to wait when people have got a little time. And I remember sitting waiting for her, and finally she said, yes. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, ma'am, I was wondering if you'd sponsor me. And she said, you just ask my, my husband to sponsor you? And I said, <laughs> I said, yes, I did. She said, why'd you do that? And I told her this whole story. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, honey, you be at my house next Monday with the big book and the 12 and 12. She said, we'll get you back to Massachusetts. And when you return, you look around. And you look for a woman that you want what she has and you're willing to go to any lengths to get it. Who's carrying this message of, of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. And she says, you ask her. I'll be your temporary sponsor. And I thanked her. And the next week I arrived at her house and I told her my story. And she said to me, honey, one day you'll tell that story in the first person, not the third person. And I had no idea what she was telling me. She said, you told that story just as if it was somebody down the block. It belonged to somebody else. You had no feelings attached to that. She said, one day you'll share those tears. And she said, I'll tell you what you're going to do with that blank page. Every time you go through this big book, you're going to find a line that's going to jump out at you. And she says, you're going to write down the page number. And she said, and then you're going to um, write down a little synopsis about what that 
line said to you. Because when that light bulb goes on, when that black line comes off that page and it's yours, it's yours, you're going to want to know where in the big book it is. Because there'll come a time, she said this, when you're flying up your own ass and there's nobody home. (laughs) And you're going to want to know where in the big book. Where in the big book you read that line. And I can remember leaving that place and just crying because there was something in that woman's eyes. Nobody had ever listened to me. Nobody had ever given me instructions for living. And this woman said, told me what to do. I'm here to tell you that she was my temporary sponsor for 25 years. (laughs) She had what I wanted and I was willing to go to any length to get it. And if it wasn't for Hugh and Beverly Douglas, I wouldn't be standing here. told me I had to be in a big book study at 12 and 12, either either. She preferred me to be in a big book study, um, and then I could meet with her once a week. And I did this. I entered this big book study. Um, It was run by a man named Mike Ross. Um, We chose to have him as our regular person to to read um, because he was a man that had spent about 10 years in recovery before he got into the big book and talked about how miserable he had been for 10 years and then he had been into the big book and his life had literally changed. And as a group conscience, we had him read a portion of the first 164 pages each week and we all shared on it. Um, I didn't, I just listened. But, um, and that was okay in that meeting. They let me just listen. And there were some greats in those days, some greats. I sat at the feet of many greats. I'm so grateful on where I sobed it up. And I can remember sitting there and listening to him talk about that and saying to myself, I don't want to wait 10 years. See, that was the message. I didn't want to wait 10 years. I wanted what you people had. There was something that was going on. I had a hole in my gut and the wind was blowing through. And I knew what that felt like. I didn't want to live like this anymore. And there was something that was happening in these rooms. And it was profound. And I was, it was pointed out to me early on, there's a line in this book, um, that God would have our head in the clouds with him, but our feet firmly planted on this plane. That's where our fellow travelers were, because I was a little bit, you know, out there with this God bless thing and the thing that happened with my um, daughter. <laughs> and I want you to know that um, uh, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that I, I knew there was some kind of a power. And then when I was told I could create a power of my understanding, I even thought that was even better. I didn't have an un- I didn't have to unlearn a punishment. I just I just had to create something. And Bev helped me with that. And she gave me some ideas, some some thoughts to have on that. And I said, okay, I would do that. And gradually I walked this path. Now I wish I could have done it just all right, and that was it. But you see, I had a little problem with self-will run riot, although I didn't think so. And you know, I thought I knew better. And there was a time there that. Um, she let me go, though. She really allowed me to fall um, pretty close there. And uh, I'm, I'm not, I don't know if that was right or wrong, but it worked for me. Um, I, um, it took me a while. It took me a number of years before I realized that I was away from the booze, but I hadn't been away from the boys. And um, that was a problem for me. Uh, we didn't have these other 12-step programs at that time. We used the big book with that problem. Um, and I can remember one of my little synopsises there was on page 69. I had to take a look at that a lot. And, um, you know, it, it, was a, it was a difficult time for me. I, I have a, you know, uh, I was distorted. My, as it talks about, you know, here's my book here. It talks about this um, in... Um, See, you know, you go through menopause, you forget what the heck the 
pages are in it or whatever. But I know that it said something about the fact of um, my values being distorted. Yeah, here it is here. Um, They said they're talking about dad, but I'm a woman, so here we are. The family after. It talks about that um, she is suffering from a distortion of values. Father, it says, was. That's correct. My values were distorted. And it says um, she will, I always do this. I don't know why, because it makes it, or I usually don't say she, I say I will perceive that my spiritual growth had been lopsided. And that was how I came in. My spiritual growth had been lopsided. I didn't understand totally. All I knew is that, that something was out there that had healed my daughter. And maybe it was because I finally gave her the attention. I hate to stand here and tell you what kind of a mother I am, but I would not do something else here to tell you that my darkest past there could maybe help somebody. I was an abusive mother. I was not at all the mother I wanted to be. When I arrived in the halls of Alcoholics Anonymous, my daughter was 10 years old. Because you people welcomed me so much and made me feel as though I was all right and I didn't have to live without shame, I stayed too much in the halls of Alcoholics Anonymous. Can that be possible? Yes, it can. I had duties to do with a child. Um to move, and um, some old, long-timer, I like to say long-timer now, um, said, said to me, um, why don't you pray about the fact on whether or not you need to move? And she said, don't tell a lot of people, because um, a lot of people say you're just running. And I thanked her, and I did. I did a lot of prayer, and I asked God to please direct me on where he would have me live. And um, by then, my dad was having his 80th um, birthday, and he had it up in Maine, and I went back for the reunion, and went to a meeting over in Brunswick where my aunt lived and so forth, and I went back to this cabin in Booth Bay, and it was, I walked into the cabin, and I got into bed, and I knew there was something in the room. That's all I can tell you. I mean, you're all going to have your conscious contact the way you're going to have it. I get God zaps. That's all I can tell you. I just get God zaps. And I had had a God zap at that time that just said, this is where you live. I thought it was a little bizarre, but um, I ended up... um, very interesting. Went back to L.A. I was doing real estate on the side and um, sold a house that had been on the market for quite a while and ended up getting the amount of money I needed in order to drive back to Maine and arrive. This is how silly it was. I arrived on December 6th, for crying out loud, back in Maine. And uh, when I arrived back there, um, I um, rented a place. and um, Well, actually, I was staying with my aunt for a while, and um, I couldn't get a job, and I didn't know what was happening in the and I'd go to meetings, and most of the time people just talked about drunkologues. And um, I didn't, didn't really see the big book displayed in meetings. Um, I was frightened to death. Um, I was um, 99% of the time the oldest member in the meetings, and I had five years of recovery. Five years, and I was like the oldest member. It tells you a lot if you're not into, um, into the book. Um, we don't stay around. You either go or grow, you know, and a lot of them were going. And uh, I remember um, one person said, and she go back to California, uh, they weren't too happy with the way I learned from very nicely how to move into an area. When I went to New Mexico for three years, I did not enter New Mexico like I entered Maine, let me tell you. Um, I learned uh, about this. But I can remember being on the phone with Bev and Hugh and crying to them um, about what was going on. And she said to me, remember, Mary Thieu, you're not in a popularity contest. You're here to share your experience, strength, and hope. And she said, if you don't like the way the meetings are going, then start a meeting. So I did. I started the Monday night big book meeting in Brunswick. 
and it's been going on for 22 years now. Um, I absolutely uh, love the AA in Maine today. We carry a very powerful message from the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I can sit in meetings, and I can sit and uh, receive as well as give, and I'm eternally grateful because many people looked at the black lines and shared their experience, strength, and hope from this book, and I'm grateful for that. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to hear your opinions, strength, and hope. I had done that from doctors and um, psychologists and teachers and parents and everybody else. Uh, Your experience, strength, and hope is what I want to hear. And at that time, my daughter, I found her one day in in her, um, she was 15, she was in the closet, and she was beating her head up against the wall. And she said, there's no God in Maine, Mom. And at that moment, I had a little moment of clarity, and I realized more than anything else in this world, I wanted to be a mother. Big of me to finally come to that conclusion when she was 15 years old. And I knew I had been running to AA to hide from the things that I had done to this child. I did not know how to be a mother. And I did the thing that was taught to me in the very beginning. I asked the question. I looked around these halls, and there was many wonderful women here that were wonderful parents. A lot of them were Al-Anon, too, and I'm really grateful for them. And I asked them how to parent. And a lot of things I heard were things that I didn't want to do. I knew that. That was not the way I wanted to raise my child. But I listened. I didn't say anything. I just listened. Because there's something that happens when you listen in Alcoholics Anonymous with your heart versus your head. Something will tell you something. It's something, I think, called that deep reality, deep down inside, will let you know what's right. And I listened, and I got some wonderful stuff that was going on. And lo and behold, I had gotten involved, you know, But uh, a little later on, this happened. My daughter was still growing. She went to college. She was in college again. And I I want you to know that um, I kept trying to grow as a parent. And it took a while. You know, it talks about that. There's a long road ahead here. It says this demonstration of these principles have to be in our families, you know, at home. And I was not at home with the demonstration by any means. In recovery, I wished I had been, but I wasn't. And I can remember that finally I I went and met this woman who was a a therapist, a social worker, and she um, did family therapy, and she taught family therapy, and she asked me to be in her class. And right about that time, my daughter was graduating with her first master's degree, which happened to be in marriage and family therapy. And I said to her, I said, said, Candace, I said, how would you like to attend this two-year certificate course? I guess if you take it, you get another little whatever on the end of your name. And she said... Yeah, I'd like to do that, Mom. And I said, okay. Well, this was not. This is my story. It could be a mistake for people, but um, you know, this is what I did. I went into this two-year course with um, this woman <clears throat> and my daughter, and of course, we became the class. Let me tell you right away. And one of her theories was is that no family heals unless the mother and father are speaking, the natural mother and father are speaking. And I thought that was a little bizarre. I didn't think that was very good. I'm not going to use the language that I used at that time. And I, you know, and I said, now, wait a minute. I said, um, I divorced him when she was eight months old, or I left him when she was eight months old. And I said, he was a very bad drunk. And yes, he sobered up two or three years later, but he, I didn't even like his recovery. I mean, you know, I just thought he was awful. And, you know, uh, he went to something called the nest out in California, which is a great place, really. 
I used to go there Saturday nights for the old timer meeting. But I, you know, I just didn't like him. He didn't support her. He really wasn't there. He came when he got a little guilty and did something, you know. But that was about it. And I didn't like him. Anyway, um, she said, and then when she turned 18, I was never going to talk to him again. I didn't have to talk to him. He hadn't supported her. He hadn't been around. He just was awful. I hated him. There you go. Talk about a resentment. And <laughs> so when she said that to me, I said, that's ridiculous. That must be for some other type of family, not when you're divorced for all these years. Now, my daughter's in the class. She's like, at that time, maybe 22 years old, 23, I don't remember. Anyway, what happened then was is that this was an argument for a year. And finally I said, okay, I'll prove her wrong. And at that time, uh, Lou was, um, he was working one of those telethings, and he had an 800 number. And so I ended up um, talking to him on the phone with this therapist teacher on the extension. And we talked for an hour. And it was a very, very difficult conversation. And many times she had to interrupt and say, no, Lewis, Mary Thier did not say that. No, Mary Thier, Lewis did not say that. And had to almost be a mediator for how we could talk to each other. And after we got off the phone, uh, we finally agreed on one thing, that he had really never bonded with this child. He didn't know who Candace was. And I agreed to talk to him every two or three weeks just about our child and who she was. Now, this went on for um, quite a while. And then um, it turned out that um, we became friends over this phone call. It was, it was a very strange thing. It was like I started to really kind of like this guy. We got talking, and things kind of went on. And, and pretty soon, um, we were all talking. And Candace couldn't believe it. And I couldn't believe that this woman was kind of like right about it. And um, I had another God's app about that time. Um, I um, went and heard a woman speak um, that I idolized a lot for a lot of years. Her name was Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And, and I heard her speak. And she asked people in the audience to raise their hand if they were doing exactly what they wanted to do in life. And I couldn't raise my hand. And then she went on to talk about death and dying because she's the woman that brought hospice to the United States. And, um, and when I left her auditorium that night, I, I thought, what a profound thing to ask people if they're doing exactly what they, what they want to do in life and then talk about death and dying. And for some reason, I picked up her newsletter, and as I looked at it that evening, um, this voice said, this is what you'll do. And it was a little institute in Española, New Mexico, in El Rito, New Mexico, that would be a degree in hospice and grief counseling. And... Um, and I thought, well, what am I going to do that for? But you see, I had never gone to college and raising a single child. And so, um, but when you get those promptings, I, I pay attention. And I ended up um, enrolling, and they accepted me. And I left my job and packed up a vehicle and rented my house. And the night before I left, my daughter got married. She got married to a wonderful man in Alcoholics Anonymous. I loved him very, very much. I introduced them. I didn't know that he was going to be my son-in-law, but he did. In fact, I had said to him when he got about a year of sobriety, I said, you know, you need to look around and find someone you can date. I had no idea he was going to find my daughter. But um, <laughs> they had a lovely wedding, and um, because it was kind of like she wanted to do it before I went to school, uh, her father didn't get to come, but uh, her grandmother and uncle and everybody was there at her wedding. Uh, he talked to her on the phone. And then I left the next day for New Mexico, and... Um, 
Uh, right around Christmas, you get these breaks, and you can do things, you know, when you're in school, which is exciting. You get like a month off. And uh, I was planning to go to California to be with Bev and Hugh. And um, she called me up, and she said, Mom, do you think you could come home over Christmas break? She said, because uh, Bill and I are going to be stationed in Iceland. And I said, you know, honey, I was going to see Bev and Hugh, but let me get back to you. And I called her father, and I said, Lou, how would you like to meet your son-in-law? You've never um, met him. Um, I'm going to be at Bev and Hughes, and he lived about a half an hour away. And I said, why don't we catch a plane and go back for a week um, while I'm out there? And he said, book the flight. I said, okay. And so uh, I called my daughter on the phone, and I said, Candace, how would you like to pick up your mother and father on January 3rd? And she said, that'll be different. <laughs> She picked us up, and as we walked through the jet port in Portland, Maine, she started to laugh. And I said, what's going on? She said, I've never seen you two talk. I've never seen you two say anything to each other. I've only seen you two yell and bicker. And we spent a week together at my home in Maine, all of us, with her husband, too. And the next day, that therapist woman said, well, come on in and talk to me. And we said, Okay. And so we did, and during it, she asked us how we were all feeling, and she got to my daughter, and my daughter said, this is the first time my mother and father have ever done anything for me where I didn't have to be part of that. I don't owe that to that woman. I owe that to Alcoholics Anonymous. There are three chapters in this book that you need to pay attention to, to the wives, to the employers, and to the family after. My sponsors would say to me, if your program is not working in any one of those areas, your program is not working. And on that first paragraph of the family after, it says, all members of the family need to meet on the common ground of love, tolerance, and understanding. And that requires a process of deflation. I was 13 years sober before I realized all members of the family included my former husband. Did you hear me say former? I do not say ex. Ex means that you cross them out of a family. That was my child's father. I was so self-centered and so selfish. I even just, I, I, I divorced him. He's no part of this family. Do you hear that? I had a process of deflation to go through. That was the father of my child. He is a member of my family. I called him yesterday and I said, Lou, your ears will be burning tomorrow. <laughs> He's probably my best friend. I married again. I have a second divorce. I married in Alcoholics Anonymous. I divorced again. My second former husband was the one that walked my daughter down the aisle. His daughter, he has five of them, just emailed me. Is coming to see me soon. You can divorce with dignity, believe it or not. We stopped because we loved that child enough, our childishness, about the stupid fights. I hope this helps some other family to remember there is a child there. Now, I need to tell you something else. There's a line in our book that I fell in love with recently. I, I still fall in love with the black lines of this book. And it says something to the effect about father again. It's at page 129. I'm going to read it to you. It says here, 
he may not see at once that he has barely scratched a limitless load, a limitless load, which will pay dividends only if he mines it for the rest of his life. See, I have to mine this for the rest of my life and insist on giving the entire thing away. And that's what I, why I stand here. You see, I want the dividends, and it's a limitless load. I got to a point where I had, you know, I don't know, 20 years or something, and life was good. And I heard that page 52 talked about where you ask the questions. Are you having trouble with personal relationships? Can you make a living? Are you a real help to anybody? You know, and all those things were done. And I was able to say, yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm really doing all right. And then someone said, you know, now you people have been around for a while. I want you to ask it this way. Do you think God has brought you as far as he can in regard to personal relationships? And I immediately said, I hope not. Do you think God has brought you as far as he can in making a living? And I immediately said, God, I hope not. In controlling my emotional nature, I said, God, I hope not. I hope I'm going to get more. And I realized that I had started to do something that it talks about on the very next page. In recovery, I had a God of reason all of a sudden. And it wasn't a limitless load anymore. I had become, in some ways, shutting myself off from the sunlight of the spirit on what this program really offers. I am an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous. My home group is the Sunrise Serenity Group. Meets at 7 a.m. Monday through Friday in Brunswick, Maine. You're always welcome. You'll probably find me there. I started knitting. I feel like one of those long timers now. You know? I have sponsees. I have a sponsor. I am very active in this program. I hope and pray. Now, this is just my little thing on this. I finally was reading that preface on the first edition, and it says that we have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. That's what I've recovered from, a seemingly, seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. It also tells me a little bit later on that if I fail to enlarge on my spiritual life, okay, if I fail to enlarge on it, I will be sure not to face the low spots and trials ahead. That means that I'm going to have low spots and trials in recovery. And that if I am having some type of life problem situation, more than likely I'm being agnostic in that area. And I am so grateful that I had sponsorships that also used to say, read the fourth chapter to the agnostics and substitute egotist. You see, I kept saying, well, I believe in God. I believe in God in some areas. In other areas, I thought I was God. And I have found that I can find this, pro this spiritual, this God of my understanding can help me in all areas of my life. All areas of my life. Do not cut this, this program short. Now, recently I heard some quote from some other thing that isn't conference to prove, but I really liked it. It says, if you don't go within, you go without. If you don't go within, you go without. This program is not about externals. It's about internal journey. There's only one path. There's no S on path. We have a common solution. There's no S on solution. So it's all right here with the black lines. Your journey is inward. When they read the promises, which seems to be the only thing they read back there, which I get a little upset with because it's not the only promises in the big book, but there you go. Um, <laughs> the promises don't have anything about externals. They're all freedoms from fear on page 83 and 84. They're all freedoms from fear. I have found in my recovery as I've gotten a little bit long timery here that, um, that there are other fears that have surfaced for me that I hide 
properly. And so I am the fish I've got to catch. And what am I up to? And I have some wonderful tools, spiritual tools that were laid at my feet where I saw that people had solved their problem because they had utilized them. It took me three times through the big book before I realized, page 25, where it said, you know, kid of spiritual tools meant the 12 steps. I thought they were weapons. I did not know that they were spiritual tools. The fourth step. For a long time, I thought it said to write a fearful garbage inventory. The energy around the fourth step would drive me crazy. It says a fearless moral inventory. Beverly told me a long time ago, she said, your drinking is not a moral issue, but your recovery is. What are your morals? What are your values? Not your parents, not your minister or priests, not your sponsors. But what are your values and where are you going against them? I never knew that's what I would find in my fourth step. I have. I've also gotten to the point where I have six columns in my fourth step, and that because every time it tells me to write, I write. Tells me to write the first three columns, it's real easy. Page 67 tells me to write what my part is, where, what I like about myself in regard to what I wrote on that first column. My fifth column tells me to list my fears on why I did what I did. And my sixth column, it tells me to write down, it's in the sex area, and there's one thing that differs really from the page 67, the fourth uh, column, where it says, what would you rather do instead? But what should you do instead? For the first time, it asked me what I want to do. What's my value in regard to this? I can remember with all those significant others, the real thing this week, you know, I used to say, well, what would I have liked to have done instead? Not be there. Just not be there. I just not be there. You know, that was like, you know, just don't be there. You know? When it came to be a parent, you know, you know, what would I rather do instead? I wish I wasn't a screamer, God. Please remove that. Why did I scream? Because I was frightened. I was frightened she'd hurt herself. I was frightened something was going to happen to her. I was frightened. I was frightened. And finally, you know, when I did the fifth step and admitted these things to myself, and I went with that sixth and seventh step, I can remember I had an effect from the sixth and seventh step. Don't miss the sixth and seventh step, please. For a long time, I did five steps in this program. And then I got intellectual enlightenment, you know, about what I was up to. It does not claim intellectual enlightenment here. It claims spiritual progress. You can really kick in with six and seven. And I kicked in with six and seven. And I can remember when I asked God to remove from me this fear so that I did not react with this action of violence at this child. I wasn't just sober, folks. I can't tell you how long before that was really removed. I had spiritual progress in that area. But I'll never forget the effect when I knew I got what I call God on board. When God gets on board as a result of the six and seven steps, something happens. All of a sudden you get a conscience. All of a sudden you get a real choice. You don't act, react. And something happens. You start to change. And I can remember she slid across the floor. I was cutting something in the kitchen. And all of a sudden, the knife slipped when she hit my elbow, and I cut myself. And I turned, and I looked at her, and she was as white as this tablecloth. And she looked up at me, and all of a sudden, I said, Honey, when Mommy's in the kitchen cooking and using knives and stuff, it's not a good idea to be sliding around in, on the floor. So in the future, honey, make sure I'm not in here cooking. She says, All right, Mommy. Who said that? <laughs> I didn't. Of myself, I am nothing. The Father within does the work. This is a spiritual program. This is a plan of action that tells you how to find God inside, to be directed differently, 
When it came with my list, when I saw my fears, I saw how I affected others. It wasn't only in my fourth step in that list. When I saw my fears and when I got fearful and how my conduct was when I got fearful, I realized I'd done it to a lot of people. I'm still making lists. You know, when I get fearful, I revert to type. I don't know about you, but I revert to type when I'm fearful and I don't have God on board. And I can remember that after um, I did this list, I had to make amends. For a long time, I said, I'm sorry. I'm grateful for a sponsor that said amends have to do with saying I'm wrong, not I'm sorry. That's hard to do, to say I'm wrong. But all, amends are really amends of our conduct on what we're doing. I'm so grateful that I had a sponsor that had me send my parents either a card or talk to them on the phone every two weeks I had to make sure I contacted them I was to talk to them about things they wanted to hear about their granddaughter about the weather about anything that happens which you talk about in the supermarket really but you know I, I needed to not tell them about me 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 the alcoholic opera but I needed to tell them about <laughs> what you know they might want to hear and that's how I made amends to my, my parents. I wanted to let you know that when I was six years sober, I had a family, too, that never said, I love you. And when I was six years sober, by then my father always wanted to talk to me. He was a very good businessman. I happened to like stocks and worked in brokerages and stuff, and, and we, we had a lot in common, and, and I'm grateful for that. Um, uh, and when he, uh, the day he died... Uh, he'd come home from the hospital. I was on the phone with him. And the last words he said to me is, Mary Thier, I'm so glad I named you after my mother. She was such a spiritual woman, and so are you. He said, I'm so glad that you're on the East Coast and that you're close to the family there in Maine. And he said, I want to tell you how proud I am of you. I love you. It was the last words I heard my father say. I owe that to Alcoholics Anonymous. And the amends I took a day at a time by following direction. I'm going to close this because I know I'm probably over. But I'm going to close this with a line, a line that has kept me sober for many years. It's the black line that I love the most. It's on page 68. It says, just to the extent you humbly rely upon God and do as you, would ha- do as you think he would have you, will he enable you to match calamity, which I was usually in, with serenity. God bless you and thank you.